Gondolas, spritzes, and networking. Venice, where for one week every two years, you hope to find yourself at the world's most historic biennial. Winding through a secret city as it opens itself to the art world. You will be regularly lost. You will move through vast galleries, pinch your eyes at didactic texts, take photos of the work you'll want to remember or that you don't have time for. You'll drift under a parasol of moving light to the dulcet lap of water and to the clamor of people, trading numbers, making pronouncements, and swinging arrivederci from their lips. This is the pilot episode of Momus the Podcast, a sonic extension to our online art publication. Since 2014, we've been publishing art criticism that is evaluative, accountable, accessible, and brave. We're extending these qualities to a conversational platform here. And on the occasion of this pilot, we turn to the Venice Biennale, the Olympics of the art world. We're looking to the 57th edition, which opens to the public this week, but also to the larger institution, a five-month art biennial that is the world's oldest, the most anchoring, and arguably the most defining of contemporary art today. As we consider its history, its profile, and its relevance, we ask ourselves, how does the Venice Biennale measure against the festivalist culture that's risen up around it? Is it possible for a platform like this to issue political comment? And how do we regard its emphasis on nationalism? Given the expense, its Eurocentricity, its imperity, who is this all for? In this episode, I speak to a cross-section of critics, historians, curators, and artists from places as diverse as Milan, Mexico City, and Montreal. We agree with one another and argue with one another. It's fun. This is Momus the Podcast, and I'm your host, Sky Gooden. You can get into places, buildings that you would never in a million years be able to get into otherwise. So for me, there's two Biennales, and this is just me. There's the Biennale where I go to look at the art. Then there's the Biennale where I go to get inside buildings that I know I cannot normally get into. So I've been in places that I just were fantastic. and. This is the voice of Sandra Pykowski, a wildly respected Venetian art historian, a former professor, publisher, and an ongoing scholar on expats painting in 19th century Venice. She's also my mentor and a woman that goes on intimidating me despite her devilish sense of humor and diminutive height. I think of Sandra as a gonzo historian. She spent a lot of time in Venice, literally hopping fences and scaling walls as she attempts to recreate the position of a 19th century plein air painter. So to hear her speak on the biennial's foremost charm for her, its unveiling of a secret city, is to hear a woman enthralled. Um, and getting into, in many say the churches, for one reason or another, you can every once in a while you can get into the first cloister, but you usually can never get into the second cloister. The Biennale, you can get into the second cloister. So there are two Biennales. If you want to see the hidden Venice, the best way to do it is through the Biennale. We begin at the beginning with Sandra setting the context for the first Venice Biennale in 1894. And so when they first set it up, there was only one pavilion. The Italians were in the middle. 
the Venetians were really in the middle, and then the, uh, the rooms all around the middle, which were various the various regions of Italy, and then the countries were scattered around that. It was a success from day one because I had all the room in the public gardens, I had an enormous amount of room, sort of thanks to Napoleon's nephew who had decimated the whole area for some kind of Parisian public garden. The intention, so, as I understand it, was to bring the world to Venice. Yes. In part, though, not just to create a tourist destination and celebrate it, Italy as an international center. Venice, but not Italy. They, Venice. They did not think of themselves as Italians. Right, interesting. Like, it's sort of like Quebec in Canada. Mm -hmm. So, but as I understand it, there was an interest as well, though, to educate Venetian artists to contemporaneize. No, what the Venetian artists thought they'd do was show the world how wonderful they were. None of this education crap. I mean, it was a chance to show off. It was a show off thing. They did it because they wanted to be taken seriously. So they uh, wanted to show you know, and they were doing something very different, and very different actually from what other North Americans or Brits and things were doing. Um, their art was much more socially uh, motivated in terms of social issues, which makes it extremely modern. There were shows in Rome and in Milan which had international artists, but this was a really intentional, they were out to do this. You know, when they had the first, they knew it was going to be the first of many. Can you um, offer some perspective on the the internationalistic quality of it? Was it a new idea or already an idea in action that we should have an international art world? Yes and no. Nothing comes out of nowhere. Everything comes out of somewhere. So there were things, as I mentioned, international shows in Rome, uh, in Milan, I'm sure that in Paris, the Société Nationale de Beaux-Arts every year was international. So the idea of the international uh, was always there. The emphasis on it being international was what it made it different. That was in their name, which the Venice called themselves an international exhibition. Right. So the difference of intention. And I often think that these things are successful because they've been tried out in a, in variations on a theme in other places and the Venetians got the mix right. Now it did not hurt that you had one of the most you know, beautiful countries and beautiful places in the world to do it. And yeah, the king of the king of uh, king of Italy opens the thing. So it was the whole publicity machine which they had invented themselves in like the, you know, a thousand years ago. Mm -hmm. Fifteen hundred years ago it was still they knew they had it down to a T, so one of the things that sets the Biennale apart, of course, is the national pavilion structure yes. and the emphasis on nationalism itself in so doing. Can you talk a bit about that and, and how it's dated? Because it was an instant success, they didn't have enough space for everybody. And there was a lot of, needless to say, yelling by the Venetians and by other Italians, I mean, but particularly the Venetians, we want more space for us, and these foreigners, if they want to come here, let them build their own buildings. Uh, it was national, I mean, the word nationalism is so loaded, and it's a word that changes from decade to decade in terms of its meaning. So it was also uh, 
a source of a certain kind of national pride. Uh, I mean, the Israelis showed up very fast after, they weren't dumb, they showed up very fast after the creation of the State of Israel. I mean, I think nationalism is a very vexed question, and there are nationalisms in any one country. So to me, it's just, there's some kind of whatever, legal or illegal tie with the artists in the country, but I don't think it says anything about the country at all. It's, there's, there's all politics is always there. How much it's representative of another national politic will vary from place to place and time to time. Well, I'm glad you mentioned politics because I've also been giving that some thought. I mean, there are examples of artists really effectively issuing political statements yeah. through their pavilion. Right. Um, a fairly recent example being the Hans Hake at the German pavilion, just right. drilling up the floor. But I wonder about um, political statements coming through the curatorial effort and how capable you see the Biennale being as uh, a venue for political comment. I think, I think it's like everything else, that every pavilion and or when they're off, off of the two main sites, every place that a country represents themselves, that the dynamics of its internal politics as well as its external politics is going to change. And I remember getting very upset, actually, um, at going to see what is the ex-Yugoslavia pavilion. And somebody did um, a very, they did a very gentle, supposedly contemplative, and I mean, I love minimalism. I've always loved minimalism, but this uh, gentle comment on the war and I was confused. I stomped out because all they had to do is you could see the country that you couldn't see it. But if you go to the Lido, you look across the Adriatic, and there's Yugoslavia, ex-Yugoslavia, and people were being killed, um, and the country was was exploding. And there's this art exhibition which was so meaningless because there was no blood and that pissed me off I mean I got walked out I just couldn't say I said I can't stand this because it was so divorced I mean it had statements but the imagery was like nothing and this didn't work it didn't pull it off and it was just made me angry it was an insult to the people who were dying especially when it was like across the you know across the Adriatic, there it was, right across from Venice. We move from the history of the Venice Biennale to the contemporary moment. What can this biennial mean to us now? I spoke to a few MOMIS contributing editors to discuss this year's curatorial frame, the relevance of this particular biennial, its emphasis on nationalism, and its potential for political comment. Hi, my name is Mitch Speed. I'm an artist and writer based in Berlin, where I'm the contributing editor for MoMAs. Yeah, hi, this is Alison Hugel. I'm also based in Berlin as a contributing editor, and at the moment I'm in Milan at Design Week. I'm Catherine Wagley, and I'm a writer based in Los Angeles, where I write about art here in the city for a number of publications. One of the most striking things about this year's edition is that of 120 artists, 103 are participating for the first time. 
How are we interpreting this showcase of emerging artists in Venice? Is this curatorially evolved or on trend? They, they, of course, frame that in a positive light, and it may be a really positive thing. On the other hand, my sort of critical reflex is to wonder if that, if that, if that doesn't also sort of play into kind of this this high turnover of maybe young artists within contemporary art. You know, contemporary art being, I think, a culture that kind of has like a fetish for young artists to come really hot out the gate, like out of grad school. And then maybe sort of have these many year long dips later on. Is that sort of is the decision of the Biennale to show a lot of artists that haven't shown before? Does it just sort of play into that cycle to the sort of neglect of, of artists that have been cultivating really interesting questions through their work for a long time? Or, or is it really just a positive thing? Because, I mean, in theory, if it was 102 artists who for so many for a large variety of reasons had been overlooked or were mid-career but just had not been recognized in a certain way but I did read um, in one of the texts I think on the Biennial's website that there was an emphasis on these young new voices and these overlooked older voices which which is very on trend right now in general you know and, and especially with the sort of the trend towards recoup you know sort of um, showing female artists who are really really late in their career um, and the sort of neglect that a lot of female artists uh, have to endure during the, the middle years of their career, you know, until they're sort of recoverable when they become older. And, and their work then plays into this curatorial trend of recovering older, um, particularly female artists. The Venice Biennale has a patchwork history of issuing political comment, both in the pavilions and on the main stage. Yeah, I wonder if it's actually possible um at all to represent politics in the authorized format. The national pavilions are slightly different, maybe more free, but I think unfortunately the Biennale tends to reflect radical politics only once they've already become mainstream or somehow subsumed by dominant ideology. They're often kind of fetishized um, within the main exhibition, at least that's my impression. So I wonder if the question would be also just if it's even possible at all to represent politics in that format. Speaking of politics, it's important to consider the complicated responsibility of an artist being chosen to represent their country. I was rereading Sarah Thornton's book this morning, Seven Days in the Art World, and her chapter on the Venice Biennale specifically. And um, in it, she's interviewing Tracy Emin, who's saying to reporters, because of the Gorilla Girls, I can stand here in Alexander McQueen with my tits hanging out, and that's nationalism on a sweet, sweet level. And then Sarah Thornton goes and finds Andrea Rosen from the British Council, who was instrumental in choosing Tracy Emin. And she asks her, you know, how do you choose? And Andrea Rose says, well, I hate to employ the word using, but our job is to use British art to serve Britain's foreign policy objectives overseas. Um, And she cites wanting to be more open in dialogue with China, Russia, and the Islamic world. She's like, we're not pushing a political line other than to say that freedom to engage in debate is a very important freedom. And then she says the challenge in Venice is to decide, do you choose somebody to make history or do you you confirm history? And it seems like she's implying they chose Tracy Emin that year because they wanted to emphasize their interest in freedom to engage in debate or controversy. And I was thinking, oh, okay. So she's suggesting that her audience is other nations with which Britain wants a certain kind of 
diplomatic relationship. And then also just trying to figure out what the message in choosing Mark Bradford for the U.S. pavilion is. Like, what are we trying to say about the U.S. by presenting him? I think one thing that's interesting about Mark Bradford's inclusion in the, uh, the Venice Biennale as the United States representative is that he's making these large-scale paintings. They're composed of uh, paper and other materials, and visually or superficially, they actually recall the abstract expressionism that was such a popular, um, powerful, or dominant American art form of the mid-20th century. It's also interesting that they've chosen Mark Bradford, the United States has chosen Mark Bradford as the artist to represent them on a global stage, being that abstract expressionism was used following the, the Second World War uh, as part of the Marshall Plan, which was essentially a, an international post-war recovery project that had elements of cultural imperialism to it, through which uh, various art forms, in particular abstract expressionism, were toured around Europe, solidifying the dominance of American visual art uh, elsewhere in the world. I think it's interesting, though, to note, although these large paintings or collages are one half of his project, the other half of his project is comprised of these social initiatives in Los Angeles, where he lives and works, um, youth centers in um, disenfranchised neighborhoods. So it seems like what the United States is saying here is that you can have this powerful, dominant, quintessentially American art form, but you can also have this socially conscious, social justice-minded uh, ethos in the same artist, in one and the same artist. There's another really interesting point bound up with this that has to do with race. Mark Bradford is African-American, and the curator of the American Pavilion has made a specific point of uh, not only acknowledging that, but suggesting that his being African-American at this particular point in time in American history was a crucial factor for their deciding on him. Um, you can take that one way or the other, depending on what your perspective is. But it seems as if the United States is attempting to give the impression that this is a problem, this problem of race relations in the United States is one that's being dealt with uh, actively. Uh, and, and the choice of Mark Bradford seems to suggest that, that that's the image they want to project in Venice. Whether or not that's true actually is uh, up for debate. And I just want to say quickly, in regards to Mark Bradford and the social justice work in Los Angeles, a big part of my work the last two years has been sort of defunct. I, I, I don't believe that his space is actually doing social good in Los Angeles. I believe that it's a tool of gentrification and that he's real estate investing on a large scale in South Los Angeles. And I, and I think that's proven by real estate records, but it's really hard to engage a engage a conversation about that in the art world in LA and also beyond. Um, and it's a huge frustration for me uh, because it just seems like the, the actual, the actual realities, if you go to the neighborhood and talk to the people there are so different than what's being promoted. And so, so to celebrate his uh, social effort in addition to his art is um, complicated and it's happening a lot in the verbiage around his work and contributions to the Venice Biennale and other exhibitions. Mark Bradford is known for his large-scale mixed-media collages that pair his interest in modernist abstraction with the detritus of his community in LA. These have the qualities of mapping and topography. 
In Venice, however, Bradford shifted into a more sculptural posture, laying gravel and trash before the pavilion, and inside suspending a bloated bulk from the ceiling. Its net is comprised of collaged paper, trash, metal grommets, and orange roofing tile. To quote critic Kara Ober, the piece is shellacked together into a bulging, seething mass that impinges upon your personal space, that precious American concept, and forces you closer to your neighbors than is customary. Bradford's work takes on a new, site-specific context here, embedded in the U.S. pavilion, with its white, romantic, Palladian revival columns and dome. This is where Bradford's message resonates most powerfully. When it comes to artist representatives, what do we hope to see? Mastery or experimentation? I think it's always my preference to see an artist trying something new, or at least something that's specific to the context. For the U.S. Pavilion, the choices of artists have been relatively safe over the years. Um, but it's so especially if it's an artist whose work is so well-known already, that just to do what you're already known for seems like a very... Um, I mean, it just seems like you would be playing into an idea of nationalism. You're, you're Like if you're Ed Ruscha and you're being chosen to represent the U.S. Pavilion and you do what Ed Ruscha is already incredibly famous for doing, I don't know, then what are you... What, are you, what kind of conversation can you open up that's actually interesting in this international arena. Following the roundtable, I spoke with a few more curators, gallerists, artists, and writers to complement the conversation. My name is Salem Twardy, and I'm a freelance writer and art critic based in Montreal. My name is Andrew Berardini. I'm a writer from Los Angeles, currently in Oslo, Norway. My name's Kim Cordova. I live and work in Mexico City. I'm an artist, a writer, and I also work during the day at an art gallery. My name is Morgan Quaintance. Uh, I'm a writer, broadcaster, and curator, and I'm based in London, England. In four separate discussions, I found certain patterns emerging and chords being struck. The first thing they shared in common was a resistance to Christine Massel's curatorial framework for this year's biennial. I mean, what I read, basically, and what she said is that uh, the idea is to focus this biennial not on a particular theme or even a sort of constellation of themes, but on the idea of the artist themselves. The focus is on uh, artists. Um, and uh, her statement says... Uh, Viva Arte Viva is an exclamation, a passionate outcry for art and the state of the artist. Uh, it's a biennial designed with artists, by artists, and for artists about the forms they propose, the questions they ask, the practices they develop, and the ways of life that they choose. Um, and I mean, of course, that sounds really nice, and it's hard. It's certainly very flattering for artists, and I feel a bit, you know, churlish uh, trying to take some kind of issue with it. But I was immediately a little bit wary or skeptical because... Uh, it seemed to me that the idea not to focus on a particular theme or topic is just a bit troubling at such a highly politicized moment. Um, and there's, there was a kind of romanticization of the figure of the artist that I found a little bit outdated. Uh, I feel like, you know, the last 20 or 30 years intellectually in art have been devoted to deconstructing the idea of the artist as a particular genius in some way. Um, and if actually the whole statement from, uh, from Christine Massel uh, seems a little bit uh, is striking in that way 
and that the language that she's using seems very old fashioned to me. Like it could almost be from a 19th century world fair. Like uh, the language she's using seems to be very much about timeless categories and the universal, the pavilions that are named things like the pavilion of joy and fears, the pavilion of tradition, the pavilion of colors, the pavilion of time and infinity. Um, overall, it seems tremendously uncritical to me and at least at first glance. And I think that when you look at the description of the pavilions, there's more nuance going on there, but definitely my first impression was like, wow, what an uncritical thing to do to just, uh, you know, lionize artists at a moment when there's so much to talk about, you know, not that artists wouldn't potentially want to talk about this, of course. So, you know, or have a lot to say, but I do think that, uh, romanticizing artists as, you know, a fountain of wisdom and particularly, um, she also says that uh, in a world full of conflicts, and I'm quoting here, in a world full of conflicts and jolts in which humanism is being seriously jeopardized, art is the most precious part of the human being. Uh, I mean, it, it just it strikes me as a, a little bit overblown, but also I think historically presenting art as the most precious part of the human being uh, can be a smokescreen that distracts from other things like the material conditions, the markets, the institutions, in which art is produced and circulated and sort of what functions it really serves. So I think that talking about art as the most important thing in life sort of detracts from attention to the context in which art is actually made. Looking back, we saw Massimiliano Gioni's 2013 edition of the Venice Biennale focus on outsider art, bringing the marginalized in and expanding art's margins out. It was largely celebrated for its expansive and eccentric approach. Then, two years later, Aqui and Weiser framed the material conditions that we often shroud in art's presentation, highlighting the labor that feeds its economy. However, commenting on art's harsh realities from the luxe stage of Venice felt glaring to some. Let's talk about the curatorial frame for Christine Massel's 57th edition, Viva Arte Viva, especially in light of these recent curatorial efforts. How are we receiving her humanist, apolitical focus, and is this potentially tone-deaf or the relief we need now? It seems as though she, Christine Marcel, is very much trying to, to learn from the mistakes of last year and say, okay, that really, that um, overtly politically charged curatorial proposition just broke down. So it seemed like switching gears for a more humanistic approach was a, a deliberate one, a clever one. Um, and, and maybe it, it was some more about looking for relief, but I also think that so much of why so many of us gravitate to art more than it being a, a way of thinking about our world in whichever way, but it also, it also really does give us an opportunity to imagine other possibilities. And I think in the ideal situation, it's an opportunity where we can experience some really radical generosity that that allows us to open up new ideas for how we could take these propositions into our day-to-day life. Yeah, I'm I'm a poet and a dreamer. So like when somebody says maybe I, I want to make space for dreams and visions, like Massimiliano did in his uh Biennale, which I thought was beautiful. Like I'm I'm into it. Uh and I I also understand that we're in a kind of a tough political moment and maybe that needs to be responded to as well. But the reason I don't like it or it looks really lame to me is that it's just, um, it's bland. Like it doesn't say anything specifically. And in that sense, you can, you can pour anything you want into it. Like it doesn't, it's not a shape that gives, um, how do I put this? It's, it doesn't have a shape to it at all. It's just, 
you can put in all European artists if you want, or you could do a sample platter from every continent or you want. It doesn't, it doesn't speak to what's happening on in any kind of direct way. So like, while Massimiliano's was like a lot of kind of outsider or folk artist, a lot of um, like visionary practices or occult practices, like I, I got what he was doing and I thought it was interesting and beautiful whilst this one, and you know, just sounds bland. Um, I think maybe what's, what's interesting to me about the particular framing that Christine Massel is giving here is sort of what I was talking about before in terms of it sounding um, outdated or old-fashioned. What it sounds like is just not contemporary. It doesn't sound like what you expect from contemporary art, um, this particular sort of like romantic, humanistic, universal language. Um, and in many ways, I think it actually sounds like the curatorial framing of last year's Montreal Biennial, which... Mm talked a lot about looking to the past and not dwelling excessively on the present moment. Um, and I think even some of the language that Christine Massel is using, I mean, she never uses the term post-contemporary, but uh, in, say, for example, the Pavilion of Time and Infinity, she talks about uh, the presentism of the contemporary era and, uh, specu quote, speculations of a future that is already embedded in the present, end quote. So I think that uh, what's interesting about her framing is for better or for worse, uh, it sounds like a move away from what we tend to expect from contemporary art, especially in terms of, you know, the, the negative aspect of that is it doesn't sound very critical. And the positive aspect is, well, maybe there's a different way of getting a latch on what matters. If people in positions of power, and I think Christine Massel is definitely a person in a position of power, not just due to the fact that she's curating the Venice Biennial, but that she's, you know, a person who appears in, you know, art forums, year-end top 10 uh, multiple times in the past. Uh, if people who are in positions of power in the art world see that the people who are going to be in charge are, you know, uh, fascist oligarchs, uh, to maybe, you know, put it strongly, and that's how things are going to be going forward, I wonder if a less critical model is just sort of uh, their way of accommodating to a new reality. And so I'd maybe just like to see more pushback against that. I feel like the way that the way that this biennial is being framed is just a little bit too comfortable in a reality that is very uncomfortable to me. As we noted, Aquian Wazer attempted to highlight the labor conditions of the art world, even going so far as to drape Marx's Das Kapital over his biennial. Should this be an opportunity to reveal the material realities of the art world? Or can such a comment from such a gilded stage only ever fall flat? Um... I know this might sound strange coming from someone who devotes their professional life to the study of art, but I'm I'm not sure that art is the most precious part of the human being. Um, I think that maybe the only way that it, the way that it may, might make sense to argue that is if we include uh, art in you know its most expanded sense, uh, you know any aspect of the creative impulse, any meaning making activity, uh, uh, what Marx called uh, free non alienated labor. Uh, you know, if we define art that broadly, then okay, sure, maybe art is the most precious part of the human being. But if we restrict the definition of art to just white cube gallery art, um, you know, the kind of thing that's actually shown at the Venice Biennale, then I really don't think art is the most precious part of the human experience, or at least I think it's hard to make that argument. Um, and I think that most artists are certainly the ones that I respect the most would probably agree with me. Um, I think art is better when it operates with a realistic sense of its relative importance in the world. Um, and if we ask who is most invested in saying that art is more important than anything else, uh, the answer is probably P 
people who can afford to collect art uh, and who donate to museums and who build museums. I mean, I'm not saying that people of means shouldn't support the arts, of course not. But, uh, you know, given the capitalist system that we live in, I think that the art world's dependence on private capital is always an issue and it's a problem. Um, and so with regard to Marcel, you know, any curatorial approach that just blithely touts the supreme importance of art over other concerns is liable to be a part of that problem. You know, so much of the criticism with the last biennial was, you know, we already know what these what these structures and what these systems are and, and that it was just enormously depressing and somewhat hypocritical. And so that that becomes an interesting question. How much should we be curating about these material conditions? Um, and, and does it become a, a cynical proposition to be curating art about these structures when the only people then able to go and see that work are the people who are benefiting from those structures? But I think that the idea of looking towards art is something that could be a celebratory moment, a unifying moment, an opportunity for dreaming. It sounds really romantic, but I think that as it is, things are so divided right now. Perhaps, perhaps that's something that we need. Um, yeah, these systems of power are real and they're in our lives and they govern what we do. But I would also note like, like, uh, Oh, yeah, like there are ways for artists to respond to these things in creative, beautiful, thoughtful ways. But I don't, how do I say this? I don't want things to be literal all the time. I don't want to talk about the mechanism of the machine all the time. That's not what, make my, that's not what makes my spirit sing. That's not always what's meaningful to me. So in some ways, like I'm super happy if an artist wants to respond to it. But I, maybe like I'm more interested in a way of doing it that's... Uh, you know, not super literal and direct. The Venice Biennale's emphasis on nationalism remains its most striking feature. How do we regard the unique challenges of this model, especially in a political moment that's both globalist and increasingly nationalist? I spoke to Kim Cordova about this aspect, especially as she's positioned in a developing country that only first exhibited in Venice in 2007. Mexico City is not Mexico, and I think that that's an important point to make because Mexico is a country that is is characterized by really, really profound inequality. And so while there are many people from Mexico who are very focused on and interested in Mexico's participation in the biennial, this is this is an opportunity for Mexico to present what is happening in the country you know to the world stage. it's it's, of course, has an enormous importance. but um, it's also not the only thing, and it's not the only time that Mexican artists exhibit internationally. So it is heavily important, but it but it's important within the context of all of these other festivals and all of these other exhibits. In 2009, when Teresa Margolles uh, presented, the piece was, what else can we talk about? And that that was a really interesting moment because the government body in Mexico hadn't necessarily been paying attention to exactly what the proposal was going to be. And so when she came with, with these clothes that were um, saturated with dried blood that she then re re wet and used that bloody water to mop the floor of the, the Mexican pavilion, it was this very shocking moment. So ever since then, there's been a lot more focus and attention, a lot more carefulness on the state of, on the, on the part of the state to see who they're choosing and, and be very, um, just very judicious about, about the work that they're putting forward because they know that this is a moment where everyone's watching. 
there's there's there seems to be like a, an almost comedic level of optimism in terms of boiling down an entire nation's worth of viewpoints and histories and opinions into one single artist's vision. And I think that, um, you know, perhaps we need to be seeing it more holistically in terms of the history of each nation's individual pavilion. But even with then the curators change out all the time. So I don't know. I, I still don't quite know what to make of the idea of one person's voice re- trying to represent an entire nation. Showing the latest novelty from each country, while it made sense at the turn of the century, now it, it just seems, yeah, really um, almost charming in its antiquarianness. And so it seems like the model itself really needs to be updated to figure out what we what we need today. And whether those are pavilions or whether they're trans pavilions, which is, um, you know, the centerpiece of the the curatorial framework. I'm not sure if the biennial was started in, I think, 1894 or something. Why wouldn't we be thinking about how we could be re-examining or re-updating this format to make it more applicable today? Or have we just decided that we want to place our value on a collective value on, on tradition of what always was and has been? I mean, it's based in Europe, the Venice Biennale. So its history has been one of like European uh, hegemony for much of its history. And only fairly recently did even other countries in the world, even in, in far, far away places from Europe, even even think of joining up in the Biennale. And the Giardini reflects that, right? The It's like the, you got to build a building there during a certain time. And if you didn't get in, then you're like, you go into the Arsenale or you rent a palazzo somewhere and you your national pavilion is there. And, and so in some ways, like the... Biennale has been Eurocentric for much of its history because that's where it was founded. And and it's starting to like be a more global thing, but mostly because the idea of contemporary art as an international form of exchange or product has started to become interesting to these far-flung places. Um, and I say far-flung because it's all over the world. Like uh, I don't know if there's ever been a Kyrgyz pavilion or if the people of Vanuatu have ever given a pavilion because maybe they don't make things that... that the contemporary art world would consider contemporary art. Maybe their cultural practices are not like objects in display in a room. Uh, so like the idea of contemporary art is a Western invention um, in that the West was, of course, patriarchal and controlled by men for a long time. And so it, those ideas are reflected in the structure of the Biennale. Like even the National Pavilion is a is a hangover from the days of world expositions where the countries would gather together to show off their newest products and their and like how much wheat they could grow or whatever. Uh, and, and I think that's why the aperto, as it was originally called, was invented, was to deal with the fact that like the nation state is not the primary way that we exchange or identify as people any longer. I sort of see it as a bit of a straw man in a way. I don't know if that's the right word. I sort of see it as a kind of um, uh, something that misdirects attention away from what should be the proper territory of investigation, which for me still is to do with um, what it means to come from different parts of the world and what it can mean for a a really sort of diverse international syncretic culture to arise out of cultures exchanging and learning from each other. So the question of nationalism 
I don't know. Obviously, it's getting a lot of play at the moment because of the so-called rise of populism. But I, I always think you have to look behind the headlines in newspapers at what's actually going on. And I mean, in, in some ways, um, the, the US election has been pulled out and draped over the rest of the world. And it doesn't seem to be ringing true. So obviously, the elections in France haven't led to a right wing government. In the Netherlands, it didn't, it didn't lead to a right wing government. Yes, we've got a conservative government, but it hasn't led to any sort of research. You know, we don't have a fuller right wing presence in Parliament. There are no UK, um, UK doesn't have a significant presence in Parliament. So I don't know, for me, populism isn't this thing that's making me reflect on nationalism again. It's the world's oldest biennial and its most eccentric. But as hundreds of similar events crawl up around it, the Venice Biennale's relevance comes into question. Are we still looking to Venice as an example of what's contemporary? Okay, so if I can just be honest, <laughs> Venice Biennale doesn't mean that much to me. I have to say, I, I don't see uh, the, the Biennale as being an important moment uh, for me or people that surround me. And I don't see it as being an important moment for the development of my own practice or their own practices. And I don't see it as an important moment in terms of enriching our qualities of life. So it's rare that like maybe you go to Venice and there's going to be some people there um, who are there as a result of curators taking a really considered embedded subcultural journey through a city or a location. It seems to me that when curators operate on a certain level, all they have is access to a certain level of art. So what I mean by that is a certain higher sort of top tier uh, level of art making and that's the one that's not really that interesting to me. That's the one that seems almost to uh, be similar across the world. So I think what's more interesting to me is like what's happening maybe on the ground in these places that's not getting much play. And I don't really feel like biennials have the, the tools or the structure to bring those things to the fore. And at the same time, what's the point in them doing that anyway? Because let's not forget, going to Venice Biennale is a super privileged opportunity. Like, people always say to me, are you going to Venice? Like, I, say, I don't actually have that much money. It's quite expensive to go to this to another place just to stand in a museum and look at work. And I think, um, so this, the idea that it's going to be a kind of game changer or it's, or it's, it's galvanic in some way, people are going to see it, it's going to reorient practice reorient thinking and charge new discourses and debates is something that doesn't ring true for me because like so many people I know who are making work don't see it as a significant moment on their calendar. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I'm pretty interested in these days, and so like the Venice Biennale is the oldest one and the second oldest one continuous that I know of is uh, Sao Paulo. And then there was this period in the 90s where Biennale started like Jump, International Biennale started opening up all over the place. And there was a class of curators uh, that was like really feeding this. And there was something like that was both um, good and bad in this phenomenon. The good thing was like there was more international exchange. And of course, it's more inexpensive to travel for people. So it's easier for people to travel all over the world to places that maybe weren't accessible before. And this promotes international exchange, which is really good. Um, but like in some ways, it also made for a certain kind of blandification of glo through globalization, where everything started to look the same everywhere. So like in architecture, like 
uh, modern architecture, international style was like this uh, utopic idea that was developed in the early part of the 20th century, but it got sort of hijacked by capitalism and it sucked out all of the utopian content and just made it a symbol of like international capitalism. So like in every city center in the world, they all look the same. There are big glass and steel towers. And what that means to me is that like those, those uh, skylines have nothing to do with the cities around them. It's like international business showing that it's colonized the city center of every major city in the world. Like uh, in the same way they used to build cities around churches or cathedrals, now they build them around business centers. And this is kind of horrifying to me for many reasons. So when so like the, the white cube with the fluorescent lights and the concrete, polished concrete floor, like this has become like the frame for art, right? And like you can go into a gallery in Dubai and you can go into a gallery in Tokyo and you can go into a gallery in Los Angeles and they all look the same. They have these white walls with these very specific kind of lights and like concrete or wood floors, usually polished concrete floors. And this is like signals to me that there's like this form of international business or, or uh, blandness that's just infected the way that we frame art. And I feel like biennales are doing something very similar. Like an artist gets on the biennale circuit and all the super curators use the same group of artists over and over again. Biennale culture as a tool of globalization is pretty weird to me and I, I feel really uncomfortable about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, you know, it's like, it. I get it. I get people have to go. I get people have to network. And I, I understand that. It just seems so strange to me that in order for me to find out what's happening in Spain or find out what's happening in, in Turkey or find out what's happening in, I don't know, South Africa, I have to go to the Venice and walk around a lot of different rooms and, and buy and get a tote bag and buy, spend loads of money on an expensive um, catalogue and read about it and then maybe understand a little. It does. It seems to me that it, it's, it should be about forging connections on a one-to-one -one basis doing my research as a curator, going to places, talking to people, understanding their work from like, you know, using primary research basically, and not just walking around with a, with a moleskin notebook and being like, who can I poach to put on in my own location? The Venice Biennale has a history of issuing political comment from its pavilions, as well as from its main stage. But there are politics sewn up in political gesturing itself. In Venice, the curatorial effort to be politically affecting rarely succeeds. What is the potential for this kind of disruption in messaging? And what are the limits to this stage? Now, don't get me wrong. I think Christine Marcel's uh, biennial sounds kind of bonkers. Uh, and I think she sort of sounds, I, like, you know, I, I think she sounds like she hasn't got a clue at all. But at the same time, I'm not naive. I'm not, like... What is, the, what is the idea that people think that suddenly people are going to make these works of resistance? And, and I sort of feel like what's happening when people are being asked to do this sort of thing now who haven't hitherto made political artwork or politicised artwork, they're coming up with kind of like maybe quite amateurish works or works that are questionable in other ways. Because to make politically engaged work, it's like you have to be well-versed in a discipline it takes a certain sensibility and a certain use uh, a certain awareness of your surroundings and certain links with uh, dissident factions activist groups uh 
campaign groups, grassroots organisations. It's not something that you can just sit down and think, okay, from tomorrow I'm going to stop. I'm just being crude here, painting, abstract painting. I know that's not what the case is, but I'm going to stop painting all black canvases and then tomorrow I'm going to go out and get a community together and make some highly politicised work. But yeah, definitely, definitely it's not political enough, but the whole art world isn't political enough. It's true that I don't necessarily know that having hypertopical themes is the best way to politicize something. Um, the title of, of this year's Venice uh, Biennale, Viva Arte Viva, uh, to me seems to suggest uh, the, the Latin maxim, Ars Longa Vita Brevis, that uh, uh, art is long and life is short. Um, and so, you know, that to be excessively topical is something that is to the detraction of the quality of the art. The topicality is too shallow. Um, and I would counter that by saying that uh, art that stands the test of time is almost always art that is has the most insightful reflection on its own context. And I think that uh, is what I'm that's what I'm worried about being lacking from this particular curatorial agenda is that it's it distracts from context. Uh, I think that that's always the most important aspect of politicization to see exactly what are the conditions in which art is involved. So I don't necessarily think that art needs to be about populism or the refugee crisis or about fascism um, in order to be political or to respond adequately to a volatile moment. I want things to feel relevant and meaningful and have currency, but it doesn't have to be trend forecasting and it doesn't have to um, be so directly about politics per se or a, a, a singular pol political situation but it, in an exhibition of that size like yeah that those things ought to be responded to in some way but there are different ways to respond to it that aren't literal like people going into visionary practices just to refer to the lesbianale oh yeah that's a way to deal with trauma like that's a way to deal with um, difficulty. That's a way to like escape into fantasy or religion or spirituality or into uh, an obsession of one kind or another is how people deal with the troubles in their lives in some ways. And that feels relevant to me as like a political question, even though it's elliptical rather than direct. In some ways that when people uh, use visionary practices or um, uh, go into like a cult or spiritual spaces, like that's a way that people deal with trauma. So one way that people can deal with political trauma is by going into the mysteries or disappearing into their fantasies. And that's real. That's how people deal. Like, I also think it shows a bit of a shortfall in that there's an asymmetry of attention that just functions in the art world as a regular thing. So what I mean by that is, you know, things shouldn't just be reactionary if something takes place in the world isn't that like suddenly the art world must respond and all artists have to drop their textbooks and pick up a, a flags and like and, and ball up their fists and suddenly be politicized i mean it should just be happening anyway so uh the the existence of politicized art within the art world should just be a constant it shouldn't be something that happens when uh, maybe people who, who are in charge of making decisions and giving people exposure suddenly decide that it becomes pertinent. This is what also, I think if that was the case, then it wouldn't suddenly seem like everybody was caught with their pants down and nobody saw what was, what was happening. Because in actual fact, a lot of people have been making political work and have been embedded in a lot of, um, uh, 
context in which they were be they were able to see these changes coming from a long way off. And if they were being given the exposure that they should have been given, in other words, if they were given sort of parity of coverage with people who are covering, let's say, more oblique, uh, less more apolitical, less you know, um, more abstract topics. Uh, then we wouldn't be having this conversation about oh my god why is why is the art world not responding why aren't institutions responding uh, why you know why isn't the Venice Biennale responding <laughs> I'm struggling to answer because in a way I, the real answer is no There's, I can't see anything happening I, like like I, I really feel like the art world where there's two sides to the art world there's a side that is just basically um, trying to reform what's already part of what's already established and that, that they're involved in discourses, debates, discussions, symposiums about reform. And those are all those always the conversations that never go anywhere. They go round and round and round and round. And they're always really depressing. And then there's people who are like withdrawing and rebuilding. And that's what I'm more interested in. I'm, I'm more interested in withdrawing from these systems that make artists always already compromised, that make critics always already compromised. That means anytime you want to show something, you're, you're, you're sort of in bed with people you don't want to be in bed with. I, I just don't, it, it seems to me like changing political systems is really, really difficult, but changing the way the art world operates is a lot easier. And I think it starts with people taking individual responsibility for what's going on. Because sometimes I feel like what, when you really get down to it, people's resistance is that, well, you know, they're quite comfortable showing in galleries and that they can't really uh, think through what it, what it might mean if that support system's not there, if people aren't financing their art, you know, how are they going to operate? And I'm like, that's really what's interesting to me at the point at which when you're having a discussion, you reach that impasse where you're like, I don't know how to move forward with this without changing the whole thing. That's the territory that I'm finding is really exciting and interesting. So this idea of reforming the Venice Biennale, I, I don't know, I mean, how, how would it be possible? I, I just, I mean, don't get me wrong, people could, it's great, people can go and everything, but it isn't that important. It isn't, it's not gonna change anything. I can't think of a better note than Morgan's to close out this first episode. Our contributors have circled the issue of political effectiveness at the Venice Biennale, perhaps more than any other topic, and what we have from Morgan is a clarion call. Do a thing, don't just gesture. Assert your politics in your daily actions, not just on a well-lit stage, and forego all platforms that have shown themselves to be compromised. Momus began as a response to a wan moment in art writing, where the stakes had deteriorated and conceded to promotion, description, news, and sound bites. We were looking to re-engage an underfed audience in criticism that felt brave, urgent, fresh, and accountable. We're thrilled to be redoubling that effort through a podcast where conversations can become more fluid and the back and forth between critics, curators, and artists can be aired in all their vibrancy. Thank you to our team, my co-producer and editor, Angela Shackle, my assistant producer, Mitra Shurum, our composer and music producer, Kyle McRae, our contributors, Mitch Speed, Alison Hugo, Catherine Wagley, Andrew Berardini, Salen Torty, Kim Cordova, Morgan Quaintance, Sandra Pajkowski, and our host, NTS Radio. 
And I thank you, our new listeners. We'll be back in the fall with our first full season and look forward to continuing the criticism in conversation then. This is Momus the Podcast, and I'm your host, Sky Good. We would like to acknowledge funding support from the Ontario Arts Council, an agency of the Government of Ontario.